Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy. With discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational thought. With words from... Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. I'm Bridget Evans and you're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, 855 on your AM dial. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. And I'm speaking to Professor Lisa Bortolotti about clinical delusions. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So could you give us some background information about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I I was born in in Italy, in Bologna, and I first did my first degree in philosophy there. Um, Then I wanted to continue doing philosophy, so I moved to the UK and I did a master at King's College London. Um, I was interested at the time in rationality in science. So whether scientists were being rational when they were investigating nature. And then um, I moved to Oxford. I did another master, the BPhil, a two-year master there. Um, and there I got more into psychology. Um, I was interested in ra- the rationality debate in psychology and cognitive science. So the question whether humans are rational after all, given that we seem to make lots of reasoning mistakes. And then I got a scholarship to do my PhD at ANU, the Australian National University in Canberra. So I moved continent uh, and I spent three years there uh, working with Martin Davis on exactly this kind of relationship between belief and rationality. And that is where, thanks to Martin Davis, who at the time was working on delusions and collaborating with psychologists and psychiatrists, I got really into into delusions and more generally, my latest uh, research years, mental health in general, philosophy of mental health. So they are kind of strengths and limitations of the human mind and what, why is it that sometimes we seem to think things that are really strange. Um, that, that has been kind of my main research interest. Now I'm at the University of Birmingham, I'm a professor of philosophy there. And I've been at Birmingham for more than 10 years, so it's been a long time. My first philosophy job was at Manchester. I had um, a research position and I was looking at ethical constraints in the practice of science. So I was doing mainly bioethics for, for a year or so. And then when I got my permanent position in Birmingham, I mainly taught philosophy of psychology and philosophy of science. And then slowly started having more graduate students and focused more on the things that I'm working on today, which are at the intersection, I'd say, of philosophy of mind and epistemology with a focus on phenomena in psychiatry and cognitive science. So at the moment, I'm leading a project, a five-year project that is funded by the European Research Council. And that's called PERFECT. <laughs> the acronym is PERFECT. The, the title is a bit of a mouthful. It's Pragmatic and Epistemic Role of Factually Erroneous Cognitions and Thoughts. 
And the idea is really to look at a false and irrational beliefs and see whether they can have any benefit. Now, what was it that inspired you to study clinical delusions? Yeah, so I started being interested in delusions when I was a PhD student. And uh, my main research question was really about uh, beliefs and whether we could have beliefs that were not rational. And delusions came up because it's a standard example of an irrational belief. Uh, It's considered to be, in some literature, certainly the mark of madness. So if you have a delusion, you believe something that you don't have much evidence about, and it is very implausible in content, sometimes even absurd. And so that was my introduction to delusions, really. I was interested in, in irrationality and irrationality. Um, But after my my PhD years, I became more and more fascinated by the phenomenon because I realized it was actually much more complex than uh, kind of the standard story about delusions being the paradigmatic example of of irrationality. And and there wasn't very much that was being done on delusions at the time in philosophy. Now it has become a much more central topic. Could you give us a definition of clinical delusions? Yeah, uh, so it is very controversial how we should define clinical delusions. Um, So don't take my word for it. (laughs) Um, Go and check what other people think as well. Um, But definitely um, there is a core of features um, that are identified in clinical delusions. So in psychology and psychiatry, delusions are mainly defined as beliefs. Um, and they have the following three features. First, they do not seem to be based on evidence. Second, they are not easily given up when counter-argument or counter-evidence becomes available. And third, uh, they are fairly idiosyncratic to the person who has the delusion. Uh, and in any case, they are not widely shared in the person's community or social group. Um, so, usually delusions are implausible in content, so, but that can vary, of course. Um, the best definitions of delusions also include some reference to the effect that the delusion is having on the person's life. Um, so, uh, some definitions say that uh, delusions are distressing, disruptive, and affect functioning in a negative way. Are there different types of delusions? Different types, yes, definitely. So the difference is the distinctions kind of depend on what we are interested in. So some people are really interested in what causes delusions, and they think they can distinguish different types of delusions depending on their causes. But we don't have at the moment a dominant theory about what causes delusions. We have a series of hypotheses. Some are in competition, some can be adopted in conjunction. For instance, some people think that a perceptual abnormality, perceiving things in an unusual way, is enough to cause the delusion. Other people believe that you need something else there, some other factors, maybe a reasoning bias also needs to be there. Other people think that delusions are due to the way that we predict information based on our current experiences. 
But what we do know is that delusions can occur in context of different mental issues. So, for instance, you can have delusional disorder, you can have schizophrenia, dementia, depression, and, and in all of these mental health issues, uh, delusions can be an important symptom. Now, if you think about the content of the delusion, a distinction that is common in some of the literature is between bizarre delusions, uh, so this is when people believe things that are very unusual, very strange, that they do not fit very well with the other things that the person believes. So, so for instance, if you think that your spouse has been replaced by an imposter or something like that, it's quite old sci-fi <laughs> um, feel to it. Um, some other delusions are more mundane in content, so they are delusions that are just an exaggeration of common psychological tendencies, for instance, the delusion of jealousy or the delusion of persecution, which can be seen as an extension of our natural feelings of jealousy or the natural feelings of paranoia that sometimes we have. If we are thinking about the way the delusion features in a person's mental life, you can have other distinctions. So, for instance, delusions can be monothematic, I think just one theme, and circumscribed, so they do not interact very much with the other things that the person believes. Or the opposite, they can be polysematic, have lots of different themes, and they can be more elaborated. So they're more like in several interconnected themes that form a complex narrative altogether. Personally, I think all of these distinctions have limitations, of course, but I like to think in terms of what the delusion does and how we can understand the delusion in context. So if we are thinking in that way, some delusions seem to offer an explanation for unusual experience. So they are a sort of revelation. They give meaning to something that was previously mysterious and puzzling. Other delusions enable the person to create an alternative reality almost, a reality where some things are better than they actually are. And so we could call those motivated delusions. And finally, some delusion seems to be a response, a reaction to trauma and abuse or tragedy in someone's life. And we can see those as protective delusions. They kind of shield the person from existing sources of psychological damage. Now, does everybody have delusions? That's a really good question. So not everybody has clinical delusions because, you know, by definition, clinical delusions are the sort of thing that comes to the attention of mental health professionals. But the word delusion is used in popular language, um, everyday language, to indicate certain types of beliefs that have similar features to the features that we talked about that clinical delusions have. So, for instance, think about the book The God Delusion, right? So that is certainly something that many people have if we think that some people think that some religious beliefs are similar to delusions in some way. So we do not owe clinical delusions, but we all believe that have very similar features to the features of clinical delusions. So these are beliefs that are badly supported by the evidence and that we do not give up easily. For instance, most of us superstitious beliefs or we are overly optimistic about our own talents and skills. So these beliefs are quite similar to delusions in the way they behave. We don't give them up easily. They do not seem to be based on good evidence, but they are not themselves clinical delusions. 
Now, a very interesting question is what makes certain beliefs with delusion-like features harmful and distressing and part of a mental health system, and what makes some other beliefs that have similar features harmless and not something that someone should worry about. Um, this distinction between the delusions that are bad for you and those that are good for you has not been fully understood yet. Uh, one factor that I think is quite important is whether the belief is shared. Um, so what other people do when you report the belief, what their reaction is. Now, the clinical delusion is very isolating because people do not share the belief. The belief is usually quite strange and it causes the person wants the belief to withdraw from social life. Other types of belief-like delusions that are more common, like superstition, for instance, or other prejudiced beliefs, many people share them. And so they do not seem to have this kind of isolating feature. What is wrong with motivated delusions? Yeah, so motivated delusions, as I said before, are those delusions where we, met, we, we believe in a reality that is better than what it actually is. And the, one of the most reported and talked about cases is the one of these young musicians who became severely disabled as a result of an accident and could no longer move, uh, let alone play the piano. And his girlfriend at the time abandoned him after he had the accident. And the team in charge of his rehabilitation noticed that a year into his disability, he still believed that he was together with his girlfriend, he was talking about having married his girlfriend, and he was refusing to accept that the relationship was over, and she moved on. She had actually started a new relationship with someone else. Now, we can see from this example what may be wrong with the delusion. So, it does not represent reality as it is, because the young man believes he is in a successful relationship when he is not. And it causes the young man to have beliefs and aspirations that are unrealistic given his situation. This particular motivated delusion also affected this man's actions, so he repeatedly wanted contact with his ex-girlfriend. So the motivated delusion basically creates a gap between what we believe to be the case and reality. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking to Professor Lisa Bortolotti on clinical delusions. Do clinical delusions have any psychological benefits? Yes, uh, this is a controversial issue, but I think they may have. So take the case that we were just discussing now, the case described by Butler of this young musician who becomes disabled and develops the delusion that he's still together with his girlfriend when he no longer is. Now, think about this man. He has lost everything after his accident, his mobility, his independence, his career, his dreams. For instance, he can no longer play the piano, which is what he was doing. Now, strong negative emotions are likely to affect him once he realizes what his life has become. The belief that his romantic relationship is still stable and satisfying may provide some relief, though, and may give him, for instance, the motivation to engage in rehabilitation, to overcome depression. So I think in this particular case, a motivated delusion, especially when it's temporary, as it was at the time, um, it didn't last forever, 
but he was there at the time when he was starting to realize what the accident meant for him, uh, could have psychological benefits, could help him overcome some negative feelings about himself and his life. Would you sort of say it's like a, a buffer zone for sometimes your mind to to as a coping mechanism because probably if he had have realized that he'd he'd lost his the function of his body and the relationship had broken down do you think perhaps it would have just been too much for his mind to cope with exactly that's exactly what i was projecting so you are uh, absolutely right in talking about coping mechanism actually Mackay and Dennett talk about potential adaptiveness of delusions and really make the point that you made. So sometimes things are so bad that they can get psychologically too much for one person. And so they suggest that we have a mechanism where in these particular situations, these critical situations, we have the capacity to accept some beliefs that the evidence doesn't actually support, in this particular case, the belief that his girlfriend is still in love with him and that they recently got married and so on, because they allow the person to keep on functioning in some way, despite everything else that is going on in, in the person's life. So, yeah, they have a, a defensive function or a, they are like a coping mechanism in this particular case. Can delusions have epistemic benefits? Okay, this is even more controversial <laughs> than uh, the question whether they have psychological benefits. So some people recognize, as I was suggesting, that some delusions in some circumstances have psychological benefits, but we were the first in our group to suggest that delusions may have epistemic benefits. Now, I think that although this is counterintuitive, because as I said, delusions are considered to be the mark of madness and examples of radical irrationality, it can happen that in some situations, delusions actually have epistemic benefits. By that, I mean that they have benefits for a person's epistemic functionality, which is the person's capacity to pursue and attain epistemic goals such as acquire true beliefs, exchange information, learn from feedback, and so on. So in a situation where the person is likely to stop engaging with their environment due to, for instance, unusual experiences that are troubling, or in the case of negative emotions following trauma, like the Butler's case that we were talking about before, what I call epistemic functionality is under threat because the person is so overwhelmed by what is going on that does not have the energy, the attention, the capacity to engage with the physical and social environment around stronger. Um, so the delusion in this case, I think, can offer a temporary relief from anxiety. And by doing so, they do not just improve the psychological situation of the person, make the person feel better about themselves, but they also enable the person to continue to engage with the natural and social environment. By not being overwhelmed by depression, by not feeling suicidal, the person maintains some of the resources that she would otherwise to perceive a natural environment, infer beliefs from it, exchange information with other people, and so on. And, and this is done in a quite active way, and it's conducive 
to things that are extremely valuable from an epistemic point of view, such as exchanging information, receiving feedback, learning new things, and so on. Is it possible for motivated delusions to be epistemic innocent? Yeah, so we were trying to find a way of describing the situation where you have a belief that is often false, definitely irrational in the sense that it doesn't have the right relationship with evidence, but still has some kind of epistemic benefit. And there was no uh, phrase in the literature that we could find that would capture that. Because if you talk about, let's say, epistemic justification, you're assuming that the, the belief that is justified has more benefit than, than cost from an epistemic point of view. And we didn't want to mean that. We didn't want the description of the belief to be like that. We wanted the belief to be such that it has epistemic cost, it has problems epistemically, as I said, doesn't have the right relationship with evidence, it's not revised when it should be, in some situations it's just plainly false and so on, and yet plays some good epistemic role in the economy of the agent. So we came up with epistemic innocence as a phrase to characterize that, because we thought that if we were talking about epistemic innocence, we were not conveying necessarily the sense that the belief had more benefits than costs, but just the sense that it had benefits as well as costs. To be epistemically innocent, then, a belief needs to have some epistemic benefit, could instance allow the person to exercise their epistemic functionality and continue to acquire new true beliefs that could not be easily obtained by the person if she did not have that belief. So the benefits are quite unique to that particular belief. And we saw the motivated delusions relieve the person of negative emotions and enable the person to pursue epistemic goals, such as learning new things, by interacting with the surrounding environment. Now, that sounds like an epistemic benefit. So definitely the motivated delusion we were talking about before um, satisfy the requirement of having an epistemic benefit. And then we have to ask, is there something else that could have that benefit and maybe be less problematic from an epistemic point of view? Now, in the particular case, the critical case of someone like the young musician who has acquired a new devastating disability, we feel that it's not easy, it's not easy to find another belief which has the same benefit as the motivated delusion, so allow him to feel good, well enough about himself that he does not, he's not paralyzed by negative emotions, and is better epistemically. Because if he has a belief about his relationship, let's say, that is more realistic, like my girlfriend left, him, left me after the accident, that belief would not play the same positive defensive role than the motivated delusion. So in this case, we think the motivated delusion can be argued to be epistemically innocent. It has epistemic cause. We don't deny that. It's not true. It's not rational to have that particular belief. But at that particular time, at a critical time, it is an emergency response. The person forms the belief. Um, the belief how the person react in some way to a situation that is quite devastating, quite critical for that person. And by having that belief, the person can restore some of their epistemic functionality. Um, so a temporary benefit that seems to be quite significant. What is the relationship between psychological 
and epistemic benefits? Yeah, that's another very good question because I think that's at the core of what we are trying to do in the project. Usually, we tend to think of the case of self-deception or motivated delusion in the following terms. We tend to think that by believing something desirable but false, let's say that our partner is faithful, that we are great singers and so on, we make ourselves feel better about who we are and what we can achieve but we sacrifice truth for happiness. So we make us feel better, but in order to do so, we need to believe something false. And so the idea is that there is a trade-off. We give up something that is good epistemically, like truth and accuracy, in order to attain something that is good psychologically, like well-being, happiness, satisfaction, and so on. Now... We want to challenge this model. We think it's too simplistic. It may be true of some of these cases, but it doesn't tell us the whole story. And so think about the musician. He believes something false, that his relationship is good. Um, he feels better about himself um, at a time when his life has been destroyed by a terrible accident. But if we arrive, the trade-off between truth and happiness is not a satisfactory way of describing what is going on, describing the relationship between the epistemic and the psychological goals. Because believing something true that does not enable the musician to overcome depression, pay attention to the world, exchange information with others, be motivated to get better, and so on, it did not support the musician's epistemic functionality very well. So, for a time, the delusion seems to be adapted both psychologically and epistemically. In other words, the psychological adaptiveness, adaptiveness of the delusion, the fact that it's good psychologically, translates into epistemic benefits as well. So, it is because the delusion can relieve the person of some anxiety, so it has a psychological benefit, that it can also have an epistemic benefit. So it can enable the person to restore her epistemic functionality. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Thank you for asking me. And I've been speaking to Professor Lisa Bortolotti about clinical delusion. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you for listening and hope you've been given plenty of food for thought. And do stay tuned for Are You Looking At Me?